Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode. Psalm 104. What I love about the psalm going in is that scholars have agreed that when they look at this psalm, this is basically a more detailed expression of Genesis 1 and 2. You can, if you slow, we're not going to do it today, but a fun exercise is to go look at Psalm 104 and see how the, each stanza corresponds with the day of creation and how what Psalm 104 is doing is it's amplifying the beautiful poetic vision that comes from Genesis 1 in a more emphatic song, this song of creation. We've called it the creation hymn, in fact. And so as we are continuing our series in the Apostles' Creed, it will be of little wonder why this psalm is so relevant for us as we talk about our belief in God, the Father Almighty, Creator, of heaven and earth. So with that, Psalm 104, let all that I am praise the Lord. O Lord, my God, how great you are. You are robed with honor and majesty. You are dressed in a robe of light. You stretch out the starry curtain of the heavens. You lay out the rafters of your home in the rain clouds. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride upon the wings of the wind. The winds are your messengers. Flames of fire are your servants. You placed the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. You clothed the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At your command, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. Then you set a firm boundary for the sea so that they would never again cover the earth. You make springs pour waters into the ravines so streams gush down from the mountains. They provide water for all the animals. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds nest beside the streams and sing among the branches of the trees. You send the rain on the mountains from your heavenly home, and you fill the earth with the fruit of your labor. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for the people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give them strength. The trees of the Lord are well cared for. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests and the storks make their homes in the cypresses and the high in the mountains live the wild goats and the rocks form a refuge for the badgers. You made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun to know when to set. You send the darkness and it becomes night when all the forest animals prowl about. The young lions roar for their prey, stalking the food provided by God. At dawn, they slink back into their dens to rest. Then people go off to their work where they labor until evening. 
O Lord, what a variety of things you have made. In your wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the ocean, vast and wide, teeming with life of every kind, both large and small. See the ships sailing along and the Leviathan, which you made to play in the sea. They all depend on you to give them food as they need it. When you supply it, they gather it. You open your hand to feed them, and they are richly satisfied. But if you turn away from them, they panic. When you take away their breath, they die and turn to dust again. When you give them breath, life is created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord continue forever. The Lord takes pleasure in all that he has made. The earth trembles at his glance. The mountains smoke at his touch. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God to my last breath. May all my thoughts be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let all sinners vanish from the face of the earth. Let the wicked disappear forever. And let all that I am praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God's word, amen. amen. It's quite a text. That's a long psalm. And there are many psalms that talk about creation, but I love this one. I love this one. It speaks to the value, the beauty, the goodness, the fingerprints of God. It's just amazing. It doesn't take long for us to talk about creation in the church for things to get off the rails pretty quickly, unfortunately. Um, we have had a habit sometimes of turning the Bible into a, a scientific book that we use to try to perpetuate various facts of history and science and all the good stuff. And I think that there are a lot, there's a lot to say about that. And the scriptures have oftentimes provided a lot of evidence and important information about why the world is the way it is. And so I don't want to diminish that. But oftentimes we get distracted and we miss the beauty behind what the text is saying. And then this causes us to lock down into a sort of faith where we're making a bunch of propositions but not experiencing the Lord. We can make a lot of claims, but are we experiencing the Lord? Listen to the first part of that. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Open and closes. Bookends the psalm. Your translation may say soul. The idea is the entirety of your being longs to experience God. That's what it means. In the 1920s, you may have heard of this, the Scopes Monkey Trial took place. And essentially, a young high school teacher, John Scopes, was uh, teaching evolution in the classroom in Tennessee, a form of evolution, and it was illegal in Tennessee at the time. And so local groups organized, took it to trial. They brought in William James Bryan, a passionate, popular fundamentalist to lead the charge. And it had recently become illegal in a couple of other states to teach the ideas of evolution. And, and so they, they, they take it to court. It's this long, drawn-out thing. You can even read the scripts of the justices going, this is a, such a silly case. Why are we doing this? Like, you can go back and read their scripts of, like, why are we prolonging this ridiculous scenario? But ultimately, um, the fun of Christian fundamentalist Brian, William Bryan, won, they won the case. The young high school teacher or the teacher who was teaching evolution was fined um, for what he did, and it continued on. And it was repealed in the 60s, and, but even now there are 16 states still trying to have this conversation 
16 states where legislators are looking, going, should they, should they, what does it mean for the First Amendment, all of that. It was, a, it was a win for William James Bryan and the Christian fundamentalists, but it was, in my opinion, a loss for the Christian witness in the States, particularly. It set off a chain of events that many can go back and trace several important points. The issue was evolution versus a literal six-day creation as revealed in Genesis. And so I th it was a miss. It's interesting to see how that one little trial had such earthquake effect for Christian witness. And what Christians believe to be their role was in society. It's a fascinating case study. It, it forgets that all throughout church history, there have been diverse opinions about the creation story. Some of the oldest church fathers that established so much of the doctrine that you so passionately and I so passionately hold, who helped us form doctrines of the Trinity, they would look at creation and say, yeah, the, the Genesis 1 is... Is it's more poetic and allegorical. It may be telling a literal truth, but it, it's not trying to get at literal six days. And then you have other folks in the early church who said, no, I think it's probably literal. And they're like, oh, cool, high five, let's keep going. You know, we love C.S. Lewis. He was a, what you call a theistic evolutionist. He believed that God set up evolution to bring about what it is. He rejected evolution as a framework for the entirety of life. He believed God pushed the button and that God is intricately involved. He was not popular back then as he is now. Because of that, he was called a heretic. Is this the hill we want to die on in the church? So you have that scopes dimension, this the, the, where the fundamentalists in us like to go to that and make that stake in the ground. Others, however, the secularist option I don't think is persuasive either. I don't think it's persuasive either. This idea that there is nothing behind everything isn't appealing to me. I don't, I don't think it makes sense of the world. It, the, those who hold it are equally as fundamentalist and narrow, but just with their position. They're just a fundamentalist for the other side. Secularists who say, you, to believe in God is stupid. Well, that sounds pretty narrow-minded. That sounds pretty fundamentalist. And it forgets that the, some of the most brilliant minds throughout history, and even now, some of the leading scientists paving the way in biology, immunology, mathematics, are Christians, who do so out of their love for the creation and the creator. But these are where we typically go in the church when we talk about heaven and earth. I want to let you know right up front, if you're interacting with people out in the general public right now, they don't care. That's not the conversation they're interested in having. We'll come back to that in a minute. But when we come to the Apostles' Creed, what do we mean as a church? Historically, as we stand univocally with the history of the church, cross cultures, what are we saying when we say we believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth? I'm going to look at this in just three questions. The first one is, who is God the creator? Who is God the creator? I love Psalm 104 because it really amplifies a lot of what we find in the creed. This vision of creator and creation. And to, this is in your notes. To say that God is the creator of heaven and earth is to say that God is the creator of, of all things, period. And to say that God is the creator of all things is to say that he is wonderfully powerful. Wonderfully powerful. Listen to the images of God given in Psalm 104. 
which again is a longer extension of Genesis 1 and 2, if you look closely. The, 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 first two ver- the first four verses, really, is about a king who rules over all things. It gives divine, royal imagery, the king of everything, the king of the universe. The wind is his messenger. He rides the wind. He, he is in control of all things. It doesn't mean he is meticulously controlling everything, but it's saying he has all things under control. He is a non-anxious God. It makes me think of Jesus when he rebukes the wind. This, who are you that the wind and waves obey you? Who are you? They say to Jesus. In verses 2 through 4, he's the king who rules all things. In verses 3 through 9, he's the architect who designed and set all things in its place. He established boundaries, provided foundations, shooed away the waters. He's the architect. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself is also called the architect or the author of life. The architect of our faith, it says in Hebrews. And then we have this image of God and and the creator as a farmer parent who cultivates the land for the nourishment of all things. You have a God who gets his hands dirty in order to bring about good in in the muck of raw material of creation to bring about beauty and nourishment and flourishing. He's not a God who's distant. We often treat God as this God who started it all off and now just is kind of not interested in anything else. But that's not the God here. This God here is intricately involved in the finer details. He's like a farmer and a parent in verses 10 through 18. And then he's an artist who designs the skies and takes pleasure in his creation in verses 19 through 26. He's this artist who, who, has, who has helped fashion the moon and the sun to know what to do. I love that it kind of personifies the sun. You've taught the sun kind of how to be. It's kind of the idea. And I love, he, he says, look, look at all the variety of things that you've made, God. You've made all these things. Look at the sea and all the creatures. And then it says, look to the ships, which is fascinating. I love And the image is like God being playful right there. Playful. Not just authoritarian up in the clouds. But it says he takes pleasure in the Leviathan. If you go back and you study ancient mythology about what people thought of the Leviathan, you're like, what? Yes, he created the Leviathan. It's an image of him just like playing with the Leviathan. Look, look, God. This thing that everyone's so scared of, you... You created for the sea. And I love that he points out to the ships because that's something that humans in their creative capacity build. Meaning we're like God in that way. Part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God is that we are creative and in our own ways. We make things that are meant to be good. We make things. And the fact that God point the, the psalmist says, look at the sea that God made and look at the ships means God is inviting us to participate in this creative work that he is doing. The first thing it says in Genesis when it says he has made you in his image, the first command he gives is to steward creation well and to be a part of the potential work that he's doing. And in verse 35, he's, also, he's the judge and physician who seemed to be the only one who can evict sin and wickedness from the world. And so the psalmist says, let all that I am praise the Lord. 
And so considering the Creator, we are wired to respond. And so this God is wonderfully powerful, wonderfully powerful. I put those two words together because they don't belong together in our culture. The idea that power can be wonderful. We are super skeptical with power, rightfully so. We see a power abused every single day. Every single day. I don't know the last person I felt like I could look to and go, you know, they steward the power really well in the public domain. And here's the thing. We, we, we all say, if we have power, we'll do better. No, you won't. Lord of the Rings offers that powerful imagery of Boromir at the first gathering. Boromir, he's, he's looking at the ring and he goes... It's a gift. Think of all the good we could do with it. All the good, good intentions. But everyone else around him knows that that's devastating to be locked into the ring. Interestingly, all of them struggle at different points with it and have to overcome that power. And the way they overcome the power is by releasing the ring, by letting it go. Wonderful and powerful don't go together in our culture, but when we look at Psalm 104 in the narrative of Scripture, you find power and wonder go perfectly together in the person of the Creator. He uses power creatively, lovingly, and redemptively. And so that's who the Creator is, according to this. When we say we believe in the Creator, that's what we mean. And so, what is the story of heaven and earth here? But heaven and earth. To say that God is the creator of all things is to say that God is purposeful. That's the next thing for you. Purposeful. Purposeful. He is telling a story. He's not just setting things in motion and go, all right, have fun. He's telling a story. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. You know, I was teaching a class not too long ago, and I did a word association. And this has happened multiple times over the years. And what I do is I'd say a word, and they'd say the next thing that came to mind. And not surprisingly, I'm not going to do it here because you're already primed, but in the classroom what often happens is I'll say, heaven, and they'll say, no, they'll say hell. Over and over, I've done that exercise. On a few occasions, people get it right. Heaven, hell, no. If you Google search, Verses that say heaven and hell, you will not find one together. Where heaven and hell are together, not one. Not one. There are at least 39 verses that can put heaven and earth in the same sentence. Hundreds that put them in the same passage. This is not to say that the concepts and ideals and we, of hell are not important, but it's not the thrust. Contemporary Christianity has overemphasized that dichotomy. There's a reason why you say heaven and people say hell. That's because we've been conditioned to think that, the, that the, the sole purpose is to get people out of hell and into heaven. We'll cover hell. There's a teaser. Come back in a couple of weeks. We'll talk more about it. Jesus talks about it. It's important. It is a part of the story, but it's not the center of the story. Because oftentimes that reduces our salvation to sin management and fear. Heaven and earth, however, are pervasive themes in the story. It permeates the entire story. 
He's telling a script. And so when we say heaven and earth, we are entering into a story, not just presenting a bunch of facts. This story is beautiful. It's purposeful. The first part that we come to the story is creation itself in Genesis 1 and 2. What you find is heaven and earth are overlapped in Genesis 1 and 2. What we mean is God's presence, his dwelling is with humanity. He is walking. He is among his spirits there. It's beautiful. Heaven and earth are together. This is how it's been interpreted throughout history. This is how we see it in the text. God's presence with human presence. That's what we mean by heaven is the dwelling of God, the presence of God. People you're going to interact with outside of the church, if you say heaven, they might think of the naked little babies floating on the clouds playing the harp. That's been the artistry behind it. That's been how it's been conceived in many ways. This kind of like weird place. But heaven, we're, we're based at a basic level, we're talking about the presence and dwelling of God. It overlapped. There was goodness and potential. Yet what happened in the fall in Genesis 3 is sin ruptured this relationship and a divorce ensued and human ambition and desire and misdirected aims lead us to use creation in our own right. We want to use creation for ourselves. We want to define morality and ethics for ourselves. We want to get to say what's right and wrong, and that's no more of a popular opinion than it is today. But it's not a new opinion. Go back to the book of Judges. Go back to all over certain texts in the Old and New Testament. You find this, this tendency to do what is right in your own eyes. That's a consequence of the fall, saying we're going to take creation and we're going to define everything about it. That's what happens in Genesis 3, as a rebellion and a rupture between heaven and earth, creation and creator. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, all creation groans now, including you. Groan for renewal. There's a reason why we look out at the world and look within ourselves and say something just is off. It's a groan. But God's not content with losing that. In Genesis 3, it's called the first gospel. The very first gospel, where God says he will crush the serpent's head. The idea is someone's coming. Someone's coming. And the serpent, that this embodiment of evil, injustice, distortion of God's good creation and word will be evicted. So from the beginning, God's saying, I'm not losing heaven and earth. Now we can fast forward to Jesus. The disciples, when, when they interact with Jesus, they believe they came face to face with the God of creation who desires to heal and make creation new by dealing with all darkness. Go to John first. Uh, you can go to first John, but you can also go to John 1 where John 1 says, in the beginning, John is saying, hey, 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 this guy Jesus, let's go back to the very beginning. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and light and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. He's saying we have met this creator in the person of Jesus is what John is saying. I want you to pay attention to that. There's the story of creation, a recognition that things are dark, and the way that Jesus is dealing with the dark. All in that passage. It's a reminder from John that God doesn't lose heaven and earth.
Jesus is the king, the architect, the farmer, the artist, the judge, the physician. All of those images in Psalm 104, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Listen to what Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says. It says, For God in all of his fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ, and through him reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. We're going to talk about atonement in a few weeks too. We don't have to understand the mechanics of what Jesus did to understand that Jesus did something meaningful and that he invites us into this renewed relationship with God. Something definitive happened in the person and work of Jesus that split history in half and makes everyone have to account for who he is. Something happened. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that in Christ we are a new creation. And so you have creation fall, this redemption in Jesus, but then one day all things will be made new. We live in the in-between times. What you might consider right now, we live in this age where, where new creation has began in Jesus. It began definitively in the personal work and ministry of Jesus. It is not complete, though. We live in what you might call the engagement period, where if we're moving towards a wedding, we're engaged right now. There's been a commitment. All things are moving in that direction, but not yet. The wedding hasn't happened yet. And this wedding imagery is all over the New Testament, particularly in Revelation, where there's a reunion between heaven and earth. Listen to this in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I, had saw, I saw a holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. Your translation says God is with his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, sorrow, crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. This is the story of heaven and earth, ruptured in the, in the beginning, restored by Jesus. God does not lose heaven and earth. Some look at this passage and go, well, it says that the old earth had passed away. It's dealing with, if you follow the imagery of Revelation, it's talking about what's infected earth. It's talking about what has conspired against earth. The language, if you look close enough, has more to do with a renewed heavens and earth. Notice, Jerusalem was a part of old creation. Why is there a new Jerusalem? Okay, well, that tells you automatically that something else is going on. God is not wiping out the old and going, okay, we're starting over. No, no. So in this story, we are invited, we are invited to join God in what the story he's telling. This is beautiful because it invites us to put down the pins to our stories and enter into the story that God is writing. Because the story that we write for ourselves often results in a tragedy, in incompleted works. We get through a couple of good chapters, then we hit something, we go, well, this must not be it. Let me start writing a new one. The story of God is the story that you crave. The union between heaven and earth coming together. And you were a part of that. 
And that leads us to this next thing. What on earth does this have to do with you? Well, to say that God is the creator of all things is to say that he is also not only powerful and purposeful, but he's personal. I'm flowing my inner Baptist today. The three P's of creation. Powerful, purposeful, and personal. We're given his name in this psalm, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. That's what that means, this covenant name of God. But the fact that he gives us his name and then gives us his face in Jesus tells you something. He wants to sit with you. He wants to eat with you. He wants to be known by you, and he wants to know you. Heaven and earth involve you at a very personal level. That God can create attests to his power. That God did create attests to his purpose. That God reveals himself to us means he's personal. It tells us a couple of things. The first thing is this. All creation matters. All creation matters. You cannot read the Bible from cover to cover and get the sense that creation is just a throwaway thing. Can't do it. In Genesis 1... Genesis 1, when it was written, it was rebuking other creation stories, in a way. Other stories said that we were some accident. A result of divine warfare between a bloodthirsty and sex-crazed gods. When Genesis was written, they said, no, that's not how it went. It's actually not true. And you fast forward to Psalm 104. Psalm 104 borrows verbatim certain language from Egyptian myths that worship the sun god. Verbatim, it borrows from that culture and language to say, no, no, it's not how it is either. We don't worship the sun. We worship the one who created the sun. So many of these creation accounts are rebukes against the contemporary narratives of how culture was perceiving it and religion was perceiving it. Same with the creed. Same with the creed. It says that all creation matters. You know, this doesn't, make, this doesn't sound controversial in our culture today to say that creation matters. But to be baptized by the, with the creed formula was super countercultural. There's a couple of views that existed that were really, we call it kind of forms of Gnosticism, basically, is what it was. But basically, you had a couple of views. The first one was this, and this was emerging in the church, and it was rebuked. The body in the material world is bad, evil, corrupted, and must be dealt away with. And so, what they would do was people would beat their bodies into submission. There was a, a handful of people who the idea of, of eating of sex, of whatever it is, was horrific because the body is bad. You deny the body anything it asks, anything it asks, because material world is bad. And that was one narrative. The other one was a kind of similar but on the opposite end of the spectrum. It said that the world is indifferent. Do with it what you please. Do with your body whatever it is you want to do. Do with creation whatever it is you want to do because it's all going to pass away eventually. The goal is to escape the body. And so in that culture, when it says God is the maker, the creator of heaven and earth, it was an emphatic affirmation of the goodness of creation. This is why Christians have opinions about sex, about bodies, why we should really care for how we treat the world. We should care about this. It was an affirmation that all creation is good. You say, well, Cody has been infected by sin. Yes, but an infection of sin in God's good creation 
doesn't mean that it's not good any more than a sinus infection means you're worthless. That's what sin is. It's the infection of God's good earth. It doesn't reese. It doesn't claim God's earth. It's an infection, and God will evict it. Just like your body is a good creation of God, the creation is still good even though it's tainted by sin. We see this all throughout. So that's the first thing is that creation really matters. Notice in Psalm 104, that section, the trees are cared for by God. You have a God who cares about the trees. All the gardeners say, amen. Farmers say, amen. So creation really matters, guys. The second thing is you really matter. In 2018, Clay Rutledge, he's a research psychologist, wrote to the... uh, Dallas Morning News, and then expanded on it in a book he called Supernatural, about the, the need, the necessity, and importance of meaning. He says, we're living in an age right now that is an um, existential angst, what he called a meaningless crisis. And this language is being adopted more and more by the sociology and psychology world, and they're exploring it. And it's very emphatically clear that people in our world today have a really low sense of self of meaning. And this contributes, they believe, to the skyrocketing rates of, rates of mental health, of physical health, and of suicides. And we can, there's many, many reasons why, and some of it are the things that we've talked about. One of the things is that, uh, that, that, I, that I think is connected as you do the research is this gospel of self-trust letting you down. I'm going to build my life around me. The world revolves around me, and it lets you down. That doesn't mean you're selfish, because many people who believe that are doing that because they're so skeptical of any institutional, organizational religion. We talked about that during week one. But here's what happens. When you reject all institution, all organizational faith, and you say everything, nothing can provide me, what I, then it, it leaves you with you. It leaves you with you. And so we try to build a world and fashion a world, but we're consistently let down. I put a couple of sentences from meetings that I've had over the last three years together to get you kind of situated around this. A lot of people in here, they're not facing the gospel of self-trust. They're facing the gospel of going through the motions. Listen to this. This is just a compilation of a couple of meetings over the last few years I've had. I believe in Jesus. It seems trivial most of the time, like something inherited that sits on the shelf. Cody, I'm just haunted by the mundane. Meaninglessness. I want to come back to that thing we said earlier. If you're out and you're trying to care for people well in the name of Jesus, they don't care about your opinion whether the six days of creation was literal, metaphorical, young earth, or old earth. They don't care. You know what they do care about? Do they belong? Do they have meaning? Where do they belong? Is there a place for them? Young people especially It is sad to sit with people who feel like they do not belong anywhere. When we say we believe in the maker of the heaven and earth, what we're saying is he has made you. He cares for you. God loves you. You have have purpose and meaning. I'm not talking about find your purpose in life. I'm talking about just you being you, like within your humanity, by being created in the image of God, you are of immense value to him.
So what does this have to do with you? People need to hear that they have been created, that they have meaning, that they are loved, and that God wants heaven and earth to come back together in Christ. I'm going to be clear, in Christ. This doesn't happen by our own efforts. This happens in Christ. This is the message that we mean. We say we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is what we mean, that God is wonderfully powerful, that he is wonderfully purposeful, and he is wonderfully personal. All creation matters. Matter matters. You matter to God. We are meaning-wired creatures. Clay Rutledge, in that article, he said, meaning is not a luxury, it's a necessity. When we say we believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, we're saying this, all, this whole thing means something. And he's invited you into it. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.